Welcome to the StatMed Podcast, where we teach you how to study in med school and how to pass board-style exams. Your host is Ryan Orwig, a learning specialist who has over a decade of experience working with med students and physicians. In the second episode of our conversations about ADHD and med school miniseries, Ryan and Mike, a former StatMed class participant, discuss issues with working memory and how this can impact med students with ADHD. Well, it's just something nobody ever talks about and nobody, you wouldn't know that's what's going on. And so you look at the students that are, you know, scoring well on tests and you're like, oh, maybe they're just smarter than you are. But realistically, they're, I think they're just encoding the information faster and able to, to keep the information in and in a more organized manner, which isn't, you know, isn't as easy for someone with ADD. Hey, Ryan and Dr. Mike are back. Talking more about issues med students with ADHD might experience in the first few didactic classroom years of med school. So when I personally think about med students with ADHD, one of the first big issues that comes to my mind deals with working memory weaknesses. For me, this is a hallmark of the med student with ADHD, one of the lesser known issues that the average person might not immediately associate with ADHD. Working memory is that aspect of your memory that everything has to pass through on the way in and pass through on the way out. You can think of it as a workbench or a chalkboard. There's limited room on the bench or the board, and that space is limited and it will fill up. And when more stuff comes in, it pushes out the old stuff. And the simplest model says working memory is seven plus or minus two slots. So the average person has seven slots, which means they can hold on to like seven items. And on the high end, plus two, maybe nine, maybe a few more. And then on the, on the low end, five, maybe maybe less. The old idea was that the higher the IQ, the higher the working memory, like they were in a static relationship. Now we know with issues like ADHD, among other things, you can have a really high IQ and be otherwise extremely intelligent, but have an average or even below average working memory. They're not static. So my theory about working memory, ADHD, and med school is this. The way medical board exams here in the U.S. have evolved with our super dense USMLE and complex multiple choice style clinical vignettes, I think somehow there was a blind presumption that, hey, all these med students, they're super smart They can hold on to a ton of information. Let's pack every vignette to the gills. This is a broad generalization that causes problems for those with average or below average working memories. And if you have ADHD, this is likely the case. This makes these folks lose key pieces of information while working questions, making wrong answers appear to be right. It's like if I say, what's 10 plus 10 plus 2? And you say, ah, that's easy. 10 plus 10 equals 20. I mean, that's right. 10 plus 10 does indeed equal 20, but the question was 10 plus 10 plus 2. It's really hard to get that equation right if you lose the plus 2. That's just a cartoony illustration of how working memory limitations can mess with your test taking at the medical boards level. And I think it can affect med students in all kinds of other ways as well. Mike, you have ADHD inattentive type. How's your working memory? That's pretty bad. And before we met and started going through all this, I didn't even know that it was a thing. You just kind of 
compensate through your life to, you know, either write things down or sticky notes or, you know, you find ways to compensate without really even knowing what working memory is or that it's a problem or that it can cause problems. What I tell people is it's not a problem until it's a problem. When I meet people, they have been compensating and it's nothing. I mean, that that's how we all get through. We all manage, right? And it's not a problem until it's a problem. But when these things become problems, that's where interventions and strategies need to be implemented and adopted and mastered to help with this stuff. So Mike, give some examples maybe of, of your working memory being not so great. Well, the the big one that affected me most was, you know, I failed boards a couple of times. And so when we started really analyzing what was going on when I was looking at questions and going through questions and trying to figure out the information and why I was missing questions, I would read through a question. And by the time I got through to the end of it, my working memory would be so overloaded that it would start dropping things that I saw and read at the beginning of the question. And so by the time I started going through the answer choices, you know, there's five answer choices. You have three, four, five different pieces of information in the question. If your working memory is only three, four, five, it's all gone. It's all gotten pushed out for the next thing. Or key parts have been pushed out. So that's like me asking you, what's 10 plus 10? And you say 20. And I'm like, no, Mike, you're wrong. It's 22. You're like, how's 10 plus 10, 22? I'm like, Mike, 10 plus 10 plus two. You're like, oh, I lost the plus two. That's really hard to get that equation right. If you're trying to do 10 plus 10 plus two and you lost the plus two, the only way you're going to get it right is by accident or by doing the math wrong. That's a fair analogy, right? For what it felt like. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, just like phone numbers. You, if you would tell me your phone number right now, by the time it would get to put it in to the phone, I would forget it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, too many slots. It would be, it's, it's, it's too demanding of the working memory. And here's the thing that doesn't make you less intelligent. That doesn't make you less smart. It doesn't make you a less good doctor. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, like you might have to manage things. You might have to use some compensatory mechanisms for test taking. We had to teach you a methodology that limits the burden on working memory all the way through. That's the solution. And likewise, that means avoid strategies that heavily burden working memory. So those test taking strategies that are like, okay, A versus B, which one wins death match? Bang, bang, bang. A defeats B. Okay, A versus C, which one is better? Bang, bang, bang. Uh, C defeats A. That's a method. I mean, maybe I'm caricaturing it a bit much, but that method is very burdensome on working memory because you're trying to remember the clinical scenario and A and C, A and D, whatever, at the same time. That's burdensome. So yeah, you sort of build methodologies to sort of offload that. What about clinically, Mike? Do you think you do things clinically to help manage some of those those limitations in your working memory just sort of organically? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a list person at work and at home. You just, be, you know, I'm in an ER, it's pretty busy. And so you're getting, you're getting three more people coming and asking you for something, a med or, you know, come look at someone before you've finished doing whatever the first thing is. And so if, if you don't have a list and you don't write it down, then you're going to forget the fourth thing that someone came in and brought to you. And so lists offload that working memory. So it's on the piece of paper. And so I'm not trying to remember it, but I can still look down at the list, go down through the list and do the things one at a time. And it makes it much easier. The same thing at home. 
even right now, I've got a, a whiteboard in my garage. It's got a list of the things that need done at my house because if not, I'll forget it and I'll forget it until I see it and then I'll remember it again and then I'll you know have to think about not forgetting it and then forget it. And so list grocery stores, I have to have a list, can't go to the grocery store without a list because I'll come out with half the things that I didn't need and the other half. I forgot. So like, that's how I've gotten around the working memory problem, both at work and then. It's a fantastic solution. What we want to do is we want to offload working memory whenever we can. We want to make it external and explicit. That's That should be a mantra for anybody with ADHD. Make it external and explicit. Trust that you're going to put it on that list and that you're going to use the list. Because otherwise it leads to like anxiety and, and distrust and like, like, oh, did I forget that thing either in the middle of, of a shift or on the way to the store or what, what, whatever it might be. So we really want to offload these things. So I think of working memory issues often with regard to test taking. You can find all kinds of things on our, our podcast feed, on our YouTube channel, on the blog with me talking about working memory and with test taking. Uh, this is just one of my central tenets, just to make sure we're clear. If you have ADHD, there are likely, very likely, if not definitively, working memory weaknesses. Even if it's just average, if you're super intelligent and you have average enough working memory, then that that, that could be big enough for that diagnosis. Or certainly a lot of our ADHD uh, learners have even they're below average with that working memory. So, but, you know, Mike and I were talking about this and I, you know, like I said, I think about it more like he was talking about with lists clinically or for his life, or we think about it with test taking. But then Mike, you came up with some example about how the working memory overload was negatively impacting you in the classroom years too, not even counting in the test taking. What was it where you sort of realized this working memory thing was getting you just in like the first year of med school? Well, I had a group that I would stay with and, you know, there were a couple of people that were top five, 10% in the class. And then, so we were friends, we'd study together and we would come to the same thing, you know, bones of the foot. And so we'd come to the same thing all at the same time. And I would watch them look at it, go through it, you know, one or two times, try and memorize it and they'd have it. They'd be good. They'd, they'd go. I would go through it. And by the time I got to the other side of the foot, I would have forgotten what I just knew 20 seconds earlier. And so I would have to then start over and kind of go in the circle and, you know, eventually you get it, but you have to put a lot more energy into it. You have to put a lot more time into it where they have already gone on to the next thing. And so the, the time that they spend was much less just because they were able to, to unpack the information and keep it in their brain longer than, than I could. But Mike, that let them transfer from working memory to short term and then continue to iterate and eventually short term to long term. And so to me, it sounds like the problem here is they were moving at a sort of an asynchronous rate compared to what you needed. So as they're wanting to move on before you are doing your own cycling or maybe they're cycling too, with too much information and your circuits need to be smaller. Solution wise, what is that solution then? I mean, then you've got to go to, you know, framework and connecting the the people that are professional memory memory people that can memorize a whole deck of cards. And yeah, the memory champions. Those people are are grouping 10 cards in one or they're connecting them somehow or they're making a story based on the cards. And so then, you know, you make a story with the bones of the foot and you go through it that way, which, you know, doesn't work well when you're trying to study with other people. So you kind of have to pull out of that group. You have to put it in your brain the you know, the way that your, your brain works. 
then go back and then retest with the group. There you go. There, you, there, there it is, though. I think, uh, yeah, my simple, yeah, that, that's what I was looking for. I think that the 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 key here is don't train with those people. Like you can't be at the early formative stages of learning with those people. That's like training. Like you're trying to play a sport. If you're playing with people that are so much, like it's good to train with people above your level. But if they're so much above your level, it's no good. If they're so far below your level, it's no good. It's like anything. My, so my mentor in my master's program, uh, Dr. Uh, Barbara Walker, would talk about um, the interphase. I think it's a phase. I don't know if this is like a real thing or what she is just part of her schema. The interphase is that space in between training with something that's too weak and too strong. You want to be right in the middle, straddling one foot in an area of strength, one foot in an area of weakness. I think this is true when training with sports. I think it's true when training, even in, at, at, like the way that Mike's talking about bringing this information on board. If it's too fast or too slow, it's not right. You got to find it somewhere where you can be right in the middle. And it sounds to me, Mike, like the way that these people were learning, they were too far above where you were. And therefore, you needed to either just pull out of that group or just you and the one person that's more on your level pull down. You guys get it in foundationally, like you said. And then if you want to rejoin the group later in the circuit where it's more quiz based, self-quizzing based, that's better. Is that a fair solution there? Yeah, so that's that's how we kind of end up doing it was the one to two days before the test, once you've had a chance to encode all the information, then you could go back, you could go back in the group, you could run through everything with them. So that way you're picking up stuff that you may have missed or picking up stuff that they're they're catching. And so then you're actually functionally studying with them instead of them just kind of having to pull you along and then it's not effective for them or for you. Yeah. 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 I think I, you know, I'm really wary of study groups because I think oftentimes we're putting the wrong criteria into why we want to be in the group, but it has to come down to what works for you individually, right? Are you getting something out of it, getting the most bang for your buck? So a lot of people ask me, well, can I fix my working memory? And I'm like, no, I've never seen anything that makes me believe that at this point in where we are. I think you want to make things external and explicit. I think you want to force recall as much as possible, track what you've re- been able to recall, force recall, get into retrieval practice, um, making adjustments in your study environment like Mike's talking about. And then in, in regard to test taking, I mean, if this is a concern, use a, an approach for test questions that's going to be more, less burdensome on your working memory. Uh, any other thoughts on the, on this whole working memory piece for you, Mike? in regards to certainly like ADHD overall, but then especially maybe with learning in those first few years? Well, it's just something nobody ever talks about and nobody, you wouldn't know that's what's going on. And so you look at the students that are, you know, scoring well on tests and you're like, oh, maybe they're just smarter than you are. But realistically, they're, I think they're just encoding the information faster and able to, to keep the information in and in a more organized manner, which isn't, you know, isn't as easy for someone with ADD. Well, and it, right. And it doesn't mean smart. Again, we, we always want to throw around that person smarter than you. Like it's, that's such a vague word, right? We don't know what that means. And we, but what we can see is their outcomes are better. So is that happening earlier in the circuit? Like you're talking about right now with the, the, the organization is the, fir- the first layer of this thing. Uh, the encoding, the putting it in, is it going in? Is it sticking? Is it going in in a way that's organized? The, the, the accessibility and retrieval, the next phase. And then the, the ultimate interface on the back end is the test taking, right? Working memory glitches can affect anything along this continuum. And maybe you've even fixed the front end like you did, Mike, in the classroom years. But then if we don't fix the test taking side, 
where working memory can rear its head again, that can cause problems as, as we've seen, right? Right. So just because somebody scores better than us doesn't mean they even know. It doesn't even mean they're quote unquote smarter. It might, it doesn't even mean they know more. It just means they know how to show more on these very specifically burdensome working memory, burdensome constructs that we call our, you know, our board style questions. These are the things you see, Comlex, USMLE, specialty boards, shelf exams, all that stuff. Now, classroom exams, I can't speak for because who knows? Those are often generated by professors. Who knows what those things are written like? Um, but working memory can rear its head here. And, and, I, and that's a great point that Mike makes. Let's just be aware of it first. Let's be aware that if your working memory is less robust than the average med student, that, that it, it can definitely cause problems. And there are things that you can do to offset these issues and not be not have your fate dictated by it. And I think if we look at your history, Mike, a lot of the trouble you probably did experience were because you hadn't yet figured out how to manage those working memory limitations. That, that's, that's a new thought I'm having just as we're talking here, right? Right. I mean, and the different, different parts of the studying, lecture, testing, working, all, all require a different solution. Um, to the same problem. But it all has to start with understanding that this working memory weakness is a part of the ADHD profile. So we can start with that. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And we'll be back with a third part where we talk more about ADHD with the med students in those first few years of med school. Thanks for listening. tuning in to this episode of the StatMed Podcast. In future episodes, Ryan and Mike will continue their conversation about ADHD and med school. If you like the show, be sure to rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can find more test-taking and studying strategies specifically designed for med students and physicians over at our blog, statmedlearning.com. Thanks for listening. 